This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. With nothing more than a camera and a dog, John Free went down to the L.A. freight yard to photograph tramps living amongst the trains. That kicked off 50 years of making images on the streets. John's passion has taken him all over the world, photographing and teaching others how to make better images. At 82 years old, John still spends hours in the dark room working on his craft. Most photographers feel guilty about their doing, so they kind of shy off. So I'm completely convinced how great photography is, and of course it's embarrassing for me too to get close to someone. But if there's more, it's so powerful that I can't let that happen. I've got to get that picture because it's so powerful. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from sports writers, college professors, fashion designers, and professional photographer Rich Key. You know, I had a limitation. I wasn't super aggressive. I wouldn't get myself purposely in trouble to get a shot. But. Uh, sometimes it worked and sometimes it doesn't, but that was the beauty of our profession. We always, we always placed ourselves in a position of challenge, whether it was a big time event or small, we, we, we stepped up, uh, with expectations to do a job. And there was a lot of pressure when people are expecting you to deliver visually, um, and that was the satisfaction that we got in return. It was personal uh, fulfillment for doing the job. The rest of my conversation with Rich can be found on our archives at justagoodconversation.com. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor for diving into my conversation with John Free. Maine Farmhouse Brands was started by Dan McCool, a healthcare professional. His goal was to make premium soap. Most people may not realize how important the right soap is for their health and the difference between soap and detergent. Soap is made from natural ingredients like animal and plant fats, whereas detergent is made from synthetic, often harsh chemicals, even fossil fuels like petroleum. Maine Farmhouse Brands makes their own soap with natural ingredients, free from harsh chemicals. So if you want to keep your skin healthy and clean, I would recommend using Maine Farmhouse Brands soap instead of detergent. You can find their body wash, shave soaps, laundry soap, and beard oils, and more at mainfarmhousebrands.com. I have the honor and the privilege and the pleasure of sitting in front of John. How are you, Mr. Free? I'm wonderful now. <laughs> this Thank is you. This is absolutely, like, I can't, I don't know any of those words. I am really quite honored to have this time with you. Well, now I am too. To spend, to spend time with me? Just a silly yeah, old... Well, I, I, it's not often that you get honored so much. This is, you know, your career, your life, the things you've done, what you're doing for photography is one of the great things in the community of photography because oh, it doesn't you. happen enough. The thank greats you. sometimes don't give back. And well, you do. Geez, it's, a, it's power. All these years, I've been practicing. How can I grab someone and be, have them become a photographer? What's the, what should I say to them? And it's been constantly, what a wonderful power. An eight-year-old kid. He can't play basketball. With, you know, Maybe he's in a wheelchair. 
give the kid a camera and this little booklet. And you've got power, big power. Right. I've saved people. I saved an old man. He'd made millions of dollars making false teeth, and he was from England. But when he was eight years old, his father says, you ain't worth a shit. And he says, John, it ruined my entire life. And he says, before taking your photo class, I was contemplating suicide. And the photo class saved him. He found out he could do it well. His father told him he could never do anything well. He was a millionaire, but he was broken, but not anymore. And he starts chasing some of the women in the class. <laughs> <laughs> Clive, his name was. Yeah, man, I've seen saved people. Well, what can it do for a kid? I'm working on that now, reworking it. Years ago, Scott and I went to a very small private school over on the other side of town. And we worked with five-year-olds, and we had them making photo books. And we got these blank books, you know, from mm -hmm. Kinko's. And, and we got pictures of them pasting in the little pictures that they took of their mother and father throughout an average day in their life, you know, with these small cameras. These kids were five years old. They're pasting their own pictures in books instead of playing with blocks. You know what I mean? Right. It lifts the kid up. The kid's, geez, I did that. That's as good as my father could make. Right. Creating something. Instant equalization on a higher level. You did that? The kid did that? Well, it looks like a man took it. <laughs> you know. Wow. Oh, God, what a power. Tell me about your childhood. You, you were born in New well, York, that's, that's moved tough. to Connecticut. How was it growing up at your time? Was it? Influential in your career where you started, or was just a regular old boy on the East Coast? No, I went to private boys' schools. That's not good. <laughs> suit and tie every day. Oh, Maybe. you and a suit and tie? Yeah, day. and I'm skipping class down in the pond and back trying to catch turtles. <laughs> Cheshire Academy, McTiernan's, where they tortured me in the basement. Oh, God. The headmaster. I had said bastard at some point. The headmaster took me down there and took out a knife like that and then took out a bar of ivory soap, cut it in half, and forced half of it in my mouth and made me chew it for a long time. Tortured me. Ugh. Horrible. Couldn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my folks. Really? So was it, were you there Monday through Friday kind of boarding school, private school, or would you come this home? Was, I was a day hop in okay. Waterbury, Connecticut. At Cheshire Academy, I was a day hop, unless my parents went on a cruise. Okay. And then I boarded there. But that was tough. It was tough school. Did Fights you have siblings? Day. Pardon? Did you have siblings? Yes, I had an older sister, three years older. Okay. She also went to private schools. She just recently passed away. You know, okay. she, yeah. Just, and it made her, she was an oddity. A geek. She was very tall. Okay. And she hung around with Rosalie Russell's daughter, who was also a geek. <laughs> very tall. Beautiful, but very tall. Right. And, of course, my mother tortured my sister by saying, always emphasizing what the tailor said. And we went to buy her a dress, and, of course, the tailor said, well, of course, you're tall. So my mother used that as a joke for years to humiliate my sister without even knowing what she was doing. Isn't that funny? You you uh, you look for a beautiful tall woman, a blonde tall woman, not 
you know, you know, there's nothing wrong with a five foot woman, but if you're five ten, I mean, you've got legs, you've got something to look at. I don't know. Not when you're in eighth grade <laughs> at the dance. Eighth, well, when you're an eighth grade boy, eighth grade girls are beautiful. <laughs> I was this big when I was in eighth grade. <laughs> was I? I was a runt. <laughs> Yeah, I was always in the front of the line for everything because I was being the smallest. I always put you up front because you couldn't be seen. For the graham crackers? Yes. <laughs> oh, God. Was there any artistic movement in your house? Was your mother or father a writer, a painter, a photo anything? My mother was a Roxyette in 1932 with Billy Rose as the great man. She was a gorgeous platinum blonde, knockout, fucking knockout. Wow. And she was from Brooklyn. And her and I cleaned out a bar in Florida. <laughs> really? Yeah. I had the guy in there. Some guy attacked some woman in her, in a, for no reason in this bar. So I grabbed him and threw him off. I got him around the neck like this. And my mother comes over and has her high heel shoe off. And she's... <laughs> and my stepfather had already fallen down. He was wrestling with somebody else. Boy, don't take the freeze to a oh, bar. You oh, guys are yeah, wild. Yeah. And then the cops come running in. I said, oh, no. And she says from Brooklyn, officers, arrest those men. They attacked my son and husband. They never looked at me, grabbed those guys, and arrested the son of a bitches. What woman would away. lie? Huh? What woman would lie? Oh, my God. The next day... Those two guys lived the floor below me in the room. Oh, no. I come down there all like. <laughs> it's pretty exciting to have a mother like that. Yeah, I bet. I hung around with all the tough guys. You know, exciting. Sure. Yeah. The number one tough guy. I mean, you look at his face. Yeah, Rocky Graciano. Yeah, you know, this guy. I bring, I bring him over to the house one day. And I said, Mom, I want you to meet my friend Eddie. She storms out of the house, doesn't say a word, grabs Eddie, throws him down, and gives him a 10-second lip lock, puts him up, turns around and walks back into the house and doesn't say a word. <laughs> Did that really happen? She's from Brooklyn. What can I tell you? Wow. Funniest woman I've ever seen in my life. In a bar fight with my wife, with my mother. Did you get a lot of her sense of humor? I think so. God, uh, yeah, she was. She was something. She was else. fun. Yeah, but they're not a good mother. You know? <laughs> Jesus, where, where did you find yourself deciding to join the Marine Corps? Well, I was getting pretty hot. Okay, I had that fuel injection Corvette running pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I had burned up the road from Old Saber, Connecticut, to Miami Beach and back. And it was getting pretty hot. And so I put the Corvette up on my father's used car lot. He was a Chevrolet dealer. I was like, <laughs> so somebody sent this for a Marine recruiter over to the house. And my mother, my mother made a big joke about it. Because the guy's about this big <laughs> in his dress blues. You know, right? Right. And, and so I, my mother says, there's a knock on the front door. And I went over the door, but there's nothing there. <laughs> Until she looked down. 
And it was Major Christie. And he was, you know, going to give me the information on the Marine Corps. Yeah, I don't know whatever happened, but I guess I joined up. And that was it. Oh, that wasn't it. No, <laughs> that wasn't it. That was just the beginning. I made the Marine Corps crazy if they ever got a hold of me. They paid big time. <laughs> they questioned letting you in? I put on, they came to me, the drone instructors came to me, and they said, listen, we don't know what happened. This is during boot camp, the toughest place in the world, Paris Island. And they came to me, they said, Gee. <laughs> they said, free, this is something happened here. Uh, we need you. I said, here, I'm a recruit. You know, they beat the shit out of me every day. And he said, there's a visiting general, and he's picked a platoon to put on a little show for him for entertainment. <laughs> and they picked our platoon. You've got to write up a little skit that you can do to entertain this fucking officer, the, the general. Were you a bit of the class clown in that platoon? Were you? Yes, and I paid dearly for that. Yeah. So I said, all right. Five minutes later, I had it. It was called the inspection. And I had five or six of my friends stand up there with their rifles. But I did the drill instructor's name, their, their voices, but I made them all gay. <laughs> that wasn't good. There was no response on, on those Marines when they heard me. What's wrong with your rifle? <laughs> Look at that. It looks awful. Have you been asleep? What have you done? Yeah. In the drill instructor's voices. <laughs> and there was one jolly. He was, he was a first sergeant. He was another little guy. You better listen to me. He, he, he was so dramatic, you know, like, you better listen to me. He's trying to scare you with his voice, you know. And I'm doing him, and he's boiling over. He's turning red. <laughs> Made him all gay. Fuck him. <laughs> I mean, did they realize you were playing them and that just infuriated I tried them? to do their voices, you know. God. So but it didn't go over very well, I'm assuming. They couldn't screw with me because I was one of the high shooters. That's very important. Right. Most important thing in the Marine Corps is a Marine in the kneeling position getting off one shot every two seconds. One accurately aimed shot every two seconds. Now, they're so accurate that they've got the recoil built in. You adjust yourself for the recoil so that when the rifle goes off, the recoil comes back. When it comes back down level, it should be right on the target again. No one thinks of that. So you're like a machine, and when it comes to rest, pop. When it comes to rest, pop, you're right on the target. Wonderful things that you learn. And you don't aim at the bullseye in the Marine Corps if you want to hit it. That's the greatest thing I learned in the Marine Corps. The bullseye is black, and so are your sights. So your sights get lost in the black. Aim for the bottom of the black where it touches white and adjust your sights two clicks up so the bullet strikes dead center. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> now, where did you learn that? Boot camp. Okay. The greatest shooters in the world, the Marines. You, just Unbelievable. Unbelievable. 
I'm did shooting Did shooting at that time come naturally to you? Oh yeah, I was a squirrel hunter ever okay. since I was. So the squirrel. rifle felt comfortable. You had an idea of yes, but never the high. I never had a high powered right. rifle. But you were squirrel shooting as a kid. Yeah, yeah. So, so it came I, natural. I loved the guns, and the and the high powered rifle didn't bother me a bit. Right, because that would be, you know, you're shooting a little 22 out in the forest is one thing. They give you an M1 or something high power. Yes. That could scare somebody because that yes. makes a noise. Oh, the noise and the recoil. See, the recoil right. is the bad Into part. that shoulder. Yeah, it, you're not going to really get injured, but you're, you're going to be thrown off. Where you, where you, where's your next shot? You know, you've got to. My parents tortured me without knowing it. They bought this beautiful summer house on the beach in Connecticut and then sent me to a camp in upstate New York. I was eight years old, never been away from home before. And it was rough. It was really rough for me. The counselor had to take me for a canoe ride and a walk. I remember him pissing by the side of a tree and consoling me, you know, rowing back. You know, that's how distraught I was. What the fuck? (laughs) So, uh, well, I had this 22 shooting thing. And I remember the first time I saw it, it was like a table like this, and here's six or seven twenty-two rifles, you know, all different, little different ones, you know. Whoa, what an impressive thing. And so, at eight years old, but, you know, maybe even, be, yeah, at eight years old, I started shooting there, and then when I got back home to the summer house, my father had made a little shooting range against an embankment, and I started shooting there again. And so I had that. And squirrel hunting is terribly difficult with a, a single shot in the woods. <laughs> you think the bullet will go from here to the squirrel without hitting anything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But in the, in the Marine Corps, I could, I could shoot. I listened to them, and I prided myself. And, and with horrible equipment. The worst trigger you ever saw in your life. How, why would anyone build a rifle with a horrible trigger like that? It's a two-stage trigger. So you're pulling and pulling, and then it gives, and then, oh, no, no, now you got to pull more. It's not, it's not going to go off. And now you're running out of breath, and now the rifle But it came naturally to you. Well, no, they instructed me. Okay. Ah, oh, the best instructors you ever saw in your life. You can't believe it. You don't do it right. Bam! <laughs> well, what year did you join? 62. Okay. So that's, it's getting hot and numb. There's people are talking. Was that something that came up that you yeah. worried about? I got out of NOM because I was going to be a rifle marksmanship coach. They needed it. The officers had to qualify with a rifle every year. And so they get rusty, and they need someone like me to work with them for a week before they qualify. We're out on the range with this officer for a week. Okay, sir, we, I think if we put more of this, uh, more black stuff on your, on your uh, sights there, and we get this for you, and I think we should change your leather strap a little bit, your positioning, yeah, they, because these officers don't have time to do this. They're busy. So a guy like me will help them qualify. They have to quali- qualify every year, you know. And uh, that's the whole thing in the Marines. That's the whole thing is a single shot. See, I think that's your first building block to your photographic career. The precision, the practice, the understanding of what it takes to see a target, a subject, and pull the trigger, the shutter, at the right time. 
Yeah, oh, isn't that funny? I never thought about that. But I was doing other things. I was a mechanic before at my father's shop and mm -hmm. doing body work and little, you know, changing spark plugs and stuff. So that was a big help. I mean, and anybody, you know, you, this is what you do. If you did it wrong, you did it wrong. You know, it's like right. any job. And uh, But I was interested in that. I've only done jobs where I've really been interested. Very, very few times have I had a bad job. But I've had probably 50 different jobs, torturous jobs. <laughs> but you're a man who works with his hands. Yeah, yes. But yeah. it's hard to get paid for that sometimes. So it you, is. It always is. Uh, the body work, you know. Uh, not much artwork that I do with my hands. I still own it, you know. Um, yeah, it's always been that way. Well, I'm hyperactive. What the hell you think I'm yeah. going to you're not you're not going to be an accountant. There's no way John sits in a cubicle. No, you know, working so. a ten key, you know, board working yeah. dialing numbers. No, and listening to my mother. We bought him that brand new truck for Christmas, and he's got it all taken apart. <laughs> Ruined it, basically. <laughs> Never put it back together. Why should I? See how it works. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> so when does love come into your life love and you find oh god a beautiful woman when i was five. <laughs> oh, i was quite the ladies man yeah you were early bloomer i, I kicked out of kindergarten <laughs> for kissing the girls in the cloak room then they sent me to private school then you know they sent me to private right. school after that Hell, handle them. Because <laughs> I ask that, right? Because in December of 25, Christmas, it's yeah. 1969, you're in Europe. Oh, yes. Right? <gasps> you're with your love. Oh, my God. That was so wonderful. But you fall in love with possibly a new camera and photography in a way you've never, ever thought of. It hit me really hard. It hit me really hard. I mean, walk me through that. What was that? heart palpitation that skip a beat kind of moment for you in photography well it's I, maybe it's when we just i decided we maybe we should buy the camera buy a camera we had the little instamatic but we were walking through a, a forest on a day and the big snowflakes falling silently they're coming down you could hear them when they hit the leaves on the ground you know what i mean i said excuse me we should get a better camera because wendy's mother or grandmother sent us some money for christmas so we went into Frankfurt, and we bought a 35-millimeter um, off-the-wall Topcon right. camera, 53-millimeter lens. And then I got that, and I started putting it together. Ooh. <laughs> wow, wow, okay. And uh, the first picture started coming out pretty good. You know, a water wagon on a hill covered with snow with the big spoke wheels and the forest in the background. And it was magic because Wendy and I were staying in a guest house in the Taunus Mountains, and there's snow all over. And I just walked out of the room, walked no more than five steps with a camera, and there's that water wagon. Click. <laughs> it's one of my favorite shots to this day because of the memories, you mm -hmm. know. But the great woods in the background, the snow on top of the, the tank, the water tank, you know. Oh, geez, that's pretty good, John. This is fun shit, you know? 
Now it gives me something new. Not only are we backpacking, but I can be looking around. I can be looking around. I can always be doing something. I can always be studying photography in my mind. So it's all, it can always be there. Why not carry it? Change somebody's life with it instantaneously. You give them a good headshot of themselves. Whoa, oh, who is it? Dino, my, my, my great young friend that I work with and does the videos. He took a picture of a guy in his 50s or something. And he, and he goes back a week later and the guy's crying. And he says, Dino, you gave me a picture that made me look like a man to myself. And then he gave him a, pic, a picture of the guy with a wheelchair and his wife sitting in the wheelchair and they were both smiling and Dino took that picture and, gave, and oh, two weeks later come back and the wife had died. And the guy, $100 bill for this young kid that took his picture of him and his wife in her wheelchair before she died. Power. What the, f what kind of a kid is Dino? He's a genius. But at that age, the guy, $100 bill. That's how much it meant to that man. It was so easy for you to take the picture, but so good in your heart to know to do it. And you got paid off for it. That man will treasure that picture. That's all he's got, a picture. Oh, you made me look like a good man. That was another one. You made me look like a good man for the first time in my life. What the fuck? That's terrible. But that's what you can do. And you get a little kid, and you say, okay, go in for the layup on the basketball, but you're down here with a wide angle, so it looks like he is over the rim. Give him the picture. What's he going to do, you know? Pictures mean a whole bunch to me. I remember when I was a kid, my f this uh, famous baseball player worked for my father for a while as a salesman, Spec Shea. <laughs> and he gave me an 8 by 10 Oh, my God. <laughs> Photos. Photos. Oh, my gosh. Now, did you look at photos before you got that camera? Were you no. interested in pictures at all? No. I guess I was just an average person. Just just a guy walking through the world, and you get that camera in 69, and it, it changed forever. Yes, because I, and I realized that it's stunning. All I had to do was go in the camera store over there in Germany and, and the magazine section. The Family of Man, all these different photo magazines, and I found out really quick, Cartier-Bresson, Robert Frank, Eugene Smith, boom, that's all you need to know. And that's what it was. It's, it's just a wonderful trip. You know, it's just, and you study, just like I study Hot Rod Magazine for so many years, you know. It's part of my work. One little tip, you know, same in the photo books. One little tip can can set you off really going big places. One little thing. What was your, I guess, career path after the Marines? What did you have in mind? What were you going to do? Nothing. Backyard body work, you know. Go back to body work, well, working on boats. Yeah, until something better comes up. Well, I don't forget what I was doing then. I've done so many things. I worked for Cabana Life Boy. Magazine. Huh? You were a cabana boy in Florida. <laughs> you were a cabana boy? Holy Christ. Oh, God. 
at one of the greatest hotels in Miami Beach, the most costly hotel on Miami Beach, the Golden Strand Hotel and Villas. And there I am, just out of the Marines, in a bathing suit, surrounded by beautiful women. And, and you I, must have had a body like a Marine. You must have been just... Well, um, I think by that time, yeah. But, but, and then I got to meet Barney Cipriani, oh, the Tarzan, the true Tarzan. He was a high diver for those right. water shows. Yeah. And I hung around with those guys. I got to, I was a diver. I'm a self-taught springboard, three-meter springboard diver. And so I hung out with those guys, and we went all over the place doing little water shows together. Wendy would go a couple of them with us. Cypress Gardens. And that's when hotels had dive boards, spring boards. You know, the people would climb up. You used to see that back in Vegas and yes. Florida. Yep. And very seldom the good diving equipment, the good boards. But sure. The, 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 this was the good boards. And, of course, Barney, he was, you know, in his 50s. But he, he looked like Tarzan. The black hair would be all slicked back as he came out of the water. And the women loved this guy for, for some reason. He'd go from 125 feet into 8 feet of water. Oh, God. I was there. He came out to Vegas. Wendy and I went out and watched him dive, and I spotted him for him. He says, John, stand under the tower. <laughs> I want to see something as I come down. <laughs> oh, what a cool guy, man. That's All right, so tell me the secret. How do you land in eight feet of water and not break your neck? I don't know. You scoop. You oh. scoop backwards. Holy Christ. Who else is going to... I'm going to go skin diving with this, spear fishing with this guy on the second reef that's 30 feet down. Right. And he he doesn't have a snorkel. He says, they make me sick. So he's got the spear gun, and he dives down 30 feet, and here's a nurse shark, and he goes, and bang, he punches it, and the nurse shark takes off. He was just kidding around for me. <laughs> But he'd spear fish at 30 feet and bring him up, no problem. And there's no tether on the spear. You know how the spear goes. Yeah, they right. That tether. Not Varney. <laughs> He's not going to miss. Oh, amazing person. A lot of those guys were so much fun to hang around with. I'm, uh, Grandma Moses, I didn't really meet her, but she'd go from 35 feet. She made her own tower. That's what they said was really funny. She made her own scaffolding up to 35 feet, and she'd go into 18, 18 inches of water. Like that. <laughs> and, and all the water would be flowing out of the kiddie pool, and she'd jump up and salute when there's no water in the pool. Yeah. That, I was fun to meet people like that and hang around with them, you know. Oh, and smugglers and things, you know, they, Guy shows up one day in a pile of gold. I never saw that, but they were telling me about it. No one ever reported it. All the Spanish gold he found, you know, but wow. didn't report it. Each coin, $75,000. When were you finding time for photography and kind of practicing your craft? Well, instantly after I started, I mean, it was very, very important to me. That time in Germany... Christmas Eve, you know, very, very important to me, I guess. I had something to do, which I could do all the time and not interrupt myself from doing other things, I guess. But I was intrigued. <laughs> I don't know. Isn't that funny? You look at the negatives, it was the tramps that got them going. Yeah. What was the draw to the tramps? And was that started in, in the East Coast? or did No. You just, 
No, just out here. Just out here. So when did you come out to California? Oh, my gosh. 70s? We're, we were in Connecticut. No, I guess 69. Yeah, 70. Yeah. We were in Connecticut in 68. Um, yeah. And then, uh, the, but the tramps, because they were, they were there, and I, had, I, I don't know if I had the shop then before I started photographing tramps. I had this restoration shop mm-hmm. across the street from the railroad yards. And so <laughs> you go across the street behind another building and there's a chain link fence separating you from the train yards, these huge tra- sprawling train yards. But somebody's unzipped it on a corner. And so there's, you go through this thing in a completely different world now. There's no street, there's no cars, big trains, bum, 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 bum. squealing brakes, you know, a whole different world. Holy shit. And then I went farther south, and that's where you start seeing the tramps. They, they don't want to be up in the main yards. They're a bus, so they hang around down lower on. And I became friends with them. I don't know why. That's interesting that you were drawn to them. Oh, well, yeah, but what a tremendous lifestyle they lead, you know. And Jesus, how they survive and why they're there and who they are and that they accepted me. And uh, Why do you think that is? Oh, I'm just a regular guy. Oh, and I had a secret weapon. Right. The white dog. The white dog oh was your God. in, right? That's your... Because everybody loves a beautiful dog. Yeah. A smiling, beautiful dog. But those tramps, see, they, they don't want to see no dog except that beautiful white dog. They just melted by, because of that dog. And so I'm in like Flynn. But then I learned how to get in but without the dog. I couldn't take the dog all the time. Sure, right. And Because uh, so it's work. You're dealing with a dog. You know, where's the dog? Where's the dog? And you're trying to work with a subject to make pictures. And I'm also prepared for any contingency they're not. You know, hey, what are you doing? Hey, what, is, that a, is that a Spokane-bound train? What do you th- is that mm-hmm. going to Spokane? You know, whatever it takes. You dis- disrupt and you try to be- control the movement. Without getting in trouble, of course. Now, you are looking at images. You're watching what Cartier and, and Frank and Smith mm-hmm. are doing. You're studying them. Are you starting to apply that early on in the railroad tracks? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How much of the tracks do you need? How much of the train do you need? How much of the tramp do you need? How much of other elements that add up and relate to each other? I think each one of my photographs has three at least three things that connect to each other to help build the whole. Right. And I, I learned that, for, of course, from Brisson. He has five. Sure. Instead of three, he's got five. Oh. I'm, what the fuck? <laughs> oh, he's, he's a rich just, guy. He's a multimillionaire. <laughs> well, he's just special that way. <laughs> oh, no. He was a prisoner of war. He was. Oh. He escaped twice. <laughs> I had a conversation with uh, Mr. Abaddon about him, and he oh. said that, and he said that Cartier was just the the great. He was, you know, we should be. I think he said we should be so fortunate to have five great photo- photos in our lifetime, and he has hundreds. That's not right. Exactly. <laughs> the man was that good. No, that's right. No one comes close. Yeah, to, to the s- amount of work and the grace and the beauty, the just gorgeous finesse and. 
dancing. It's a beautiful flamenco. Wow. You're not impressed? It's like a great springboard diver. Greg Luganus. Right. So how long are you, does it take you to kind of start to feel that you're comfortable out there? Because it's one thing if a man just goes out, takes a camera and shoots pictures. It's another thing when you're starting to feel like you're making photos. Because there is a difference between taking a picture and making a picture. Oh, very good. Uh, most people feel guilty. Most photographers feel guilty about what they're doing, so they kind of shy off. So I'm completely convinced of how great photography is. And, of course, it's embarrassing for me, too, to get close to somebody. But there's more... It's so powerful that I can't let that happen. I've got to get that picture because it's so powerful. So you have to be unhuman and go beyond your instincts a little bit without being a, a crush on someone, without disturbing someone, you know. And there's ways to do that. You're always smiling, and you're always kind of looking past it. It's like you're interested in something else over there, you know. But you're always ready if they ask you, oh, I just didn't want to disturb you, or, or what? The, where'd you get that ring? I mean, Where'd you get that ring? Or, or oh, <laughs> right, <laughs> and it works. It works. It usually works. You know. Did I've that take you in. three or four, or five years to develop that kind of, I guess, maturity in understanding what it takes to make a photo? Yeah, probably. I don't know. Because when I look at your early work and I look at your, you know, at through the '80s and the '90s, you can see a maturity. You can see confidence. Oh. Well, that, that figures. I mean, after right. all that time, you should have a little mm -hmm. Your 10,000 hours, nothing surprises you. You have a better understanding when you walk into a scene. Yes. What's going to work, what's not going to work. Shadows, you know, you play with them, you use them. Yes, it's, it's so important. It's like a Marine rifleman walking through the boonies. What's he checking? What's he thinking about? Right. Equipment check, constant. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to put the rookie up on point, right? The rookie marine on point when you're going oh. through the jungle because you don't know what's going to happen to the platoon. Yeah, I never got very. I never got close at all to any combat, you know. Right, but, but they, they train the shit out of you. But doing the same thing, you needed to protect yourself when you go out to those railroad tracks because you are dealing with people that could have bad intentions for you. Yes. So it was, I'm sure. You had to be alert. Oh, God. I walked into situations sometime when I didn't have the dog, and there's five or six guys there right around the call, right there in front of me. Mm -hmm. These are bad-looking motherfuckers. I took their picture on the But they're... Right. I mean, they're, they're looking like at your camera, I'm sure, going, that's money. That guy's... That's money. Yes, and he's all alone. And I could take his watch, his wallet, and everything, and no one will know. The pictures look like the 1890 New York pictures of the Bowery. These guys looking at me like this, like death looking at me. Hi, guys. <laughs> is that the photo where the one gentleman is not looking at you? Yes, his head is down? His, yeah. Yeah. He See, and that's what I think. He's hot. That, that's the guy that makes me nervous. Oh, yeah. Because the guy who doesn't want to make eye contact with you is the one I'm spending my most energy staring at. And what the fuck was I doing there? What am I doing there? What are you, crazy? You're trespassing. Yeah, in, on the property and in their world. So was there ever a moment where you started to feel, like, worried, unsafe? Oh, yeah, a few times, but I forget them now. Yeah. Well, I'm, 
I'm not a pushover. And I was in shape, and they're all alcoholics. What are they right. going to do? You right. Know? They didn't want to take a chance with a young guy like me because I never had any trouble. Never had any trouble from those guys. Yeah. And here I've got this camera, you know? But I think that they like that. They're the low lives. Oh. <laughs> I got loaded one night. I said, I know. I'll get down to the yards. <laughs> you know, and I went down to the railroad yards in the middle of the night and I got surrounded by a Chicano gang. <laughs> I forget what they said, but I said something, and after I said it, the leader of the gang says, Hey, man, this dude's all right. <laughs> I said, oh, Oh, they thought that this gringo must have been absolutely crazy wandering around here. At night. Yeah. <laughs> With a camera. Oh, this dude's all right, man. <laughs> oh, my God. Now, you're still doing body work at the time. I mean, you're working. Mm-hmm. You have a nine-to-five job. Yes. Sort of. You know, right. I'm a gypsy kind of. Thing. Yeah. Is photography kind of your mistress, your passion? Oh, yes. Inst- instantaneous. The day I touched the camera, everything switched. It was crazy. It was almost embarrassing. Oh, Wendy will probably tell you, yeah, it's crazy. I was instantly smitten with the, with the possibility, not the camera, but what I could get with it. Right. It's addictive. I've been there. We've all been well, there. Why not? You're going to make something good, and here's a tool to do it with. Right. Wow, well, if you're trying to do good things, that's a big step, trying to do good things with the camera. Now that's going to work. You're going in a good direction, a selfless direction. See, I don't take pictures for me. I take them for you. I think of the average person, and, and I compose the film that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not for me. Right. But you have, that's an important thing to think about. How much you're going to show yourself. If it's just for you, you'll only show yourself this much. But if it's for the average person, you'll get closer and open up and show more information. Yeah, That's not how you would take the picture for yourself. You're taking it for the average person, so you need to show more information. Through the 70s, are you? do you have a plan? Are you thinking, like, I could do something with these images that I'm making? I'm, I mean, obviously, it's pre-internet, so it's a book is really the only place. Or are you showing these to anybody, or are you just... Yeah, the art fairs, Laguna Beach, the art right. show in, in the summertime. Yeah. We were down there. And what, were your respo- what was the response of people? Because, I mean, right. that's, it's, it's a new medium to be showing that world. Yes. And then what p- pictures do I choose? <laughs> right. So, But there was a, it was great. It worked out great for me. They loved it. Did you have any mentors you were leaning on, photo editors, nothing? Because, I mean, you're just a guy going out taking pictures, and your passion can only take you so far. Was there anybody you were able to lean on? No. Wow. Really? No. That's unbelievable. That's great. I mean. Well, I was better than anybody that I knew. So right. I was mostly, uh, like, maybe to help a kid, you know, mm-hmm. get a kid started. But Did you build a dark room at the house by then? <laughs> I can see it in your face. Yes, like it was. Well, I, I had a dark room when there was no dark room. It was a changing bag. Oh, oh my yeah. God. <laughs> yeah. The old bag. And that's a business I thought about starting. I build the 
quickest dark room, the cheapest dark room, mm-hmm. and, so you can put it away, you know. But, oh, I've always had the dark room. Scott probably knows better than I. I'm still in there eight hours a day. Yeah. It's your club. It's your place to be. I'm producing. Yeah. And I've got to produce because, of course, I don't have much time left. You can see that in my eyes, can't you? Yeah. So I got to produce while I got the time. And I'm producing a good thing. All the pictures might be good, but I'm, I'll find something. I just got a good one of Bobby Cato, the black guy in the train yards. My God. He was a ma- magic man, man. Black guy, you know, from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. One leg. Beat the shit out of you with his crutch if he wanted to. <laughs> he was like Long John Silver. That's what Long John Silver did in, the, what was that movie, Treasure Island? Mm-hmm. And Long John Silver took off his crutch and threw it at the guy's legs and knocked the guy down and then hopped over and jumped on him. That's what Bobby Cato did. <laughs> wow. Yes, he was feared. <laughs> of course, they're all winos. Yeah. He was a wino too, but he was a good, you know, he was, he was in control. You know, he wasn't, you know, gone. When did you find Nikon and move up to that professional level gear? Professional level of gear? The Nikon F4 or F3, right? Because that's when you started shooting with that camera. Probably around 1980. Did that make a difference for you? Oh, huge difference. And, And what's ridiculous is people don't know what the difference is. They're so stupid photographers. The average photographer has been blessed by what his mother has told him how great he is. So why does he need to check the specs on the camera? The Nikon F3, there's only three cameras in the world that have 100% viewfinder coverage, no surprises later. The other cameras have 95% coverage, meaning you're going to get 5% more than you wanted, and your wife is going to tease you about it. <laughs> I told you to get closer. <laughs> why, why would anyone make, give you five extra than you wanted? Well, right. they can always crop it. So, when, Where did you go get that camera? Do you remember your first time you put your hands on it? The F3, I don't know. Right. Was it? Yeah, could have been at Frank's. Yeah. You know about Frank's camera? Yeah. What focal length did you start using? Uh, 50 or 55. Okay, now why the 55? Because it's closer to what the eye actually sees, which is a 58. Right, okay, that's what I thought. And I got one of those, but right. it's a big, clunky, yeah, fast lens. Yeah, the Nikon, was it the 2.8 macro 55 millimeter? Yes, that, yeah. exactly. Sharpest lens in the, they have. Yeah. No glass. There's yeah. no glass in it. The thing's unbelievable. Yeah. And cheap, so you don't care right. you bang it up. Yeah. But they don't, people don't get that. And they don't get the 100% viewfinder coverage. What are you doing? Why would you, why would you completely alter your shot? You chose this, and now you're going to get this? Wow. See, because I, I, I never heard you say that, the reason for the focal length, and that's what I felt it was. It was you were giving the perspective of eye, what eye sight, the eye sees. You weren't shooting a 20 millimeter or an 85. You were wanting to show what the eye sees. Yes, and I don't know if that's correct or not. 
And now I'm more uh, anxious to take out my 85. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yes. Why, why did I get in this big, strong thing for the normal? For the normal. Because you didn't want to be extravagant. You didn't want to show off. Kind of. You wanted right. to be a regular guy. But the 85 is not so long that it really distracts. Now, the 135, I, I just did my picture of Bobby Cato, the, the tramp. And that was done with a 135, 3.5, which is the sharpest lens I've ever seen. It's so sharp that it's unbelievable. It's a cheap 135, you know. But you know what? Looking around at all these pictures on your wall, almost 95% of them 28. Oh, I'll be darned. Those are all 28. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <gasps> oh. Even the pier. That's probably 28, because that's what you walk with, 28, in those days. Yes. Even though I don't know if that was right or not, but hmm. well, it's, it's I guess a guy like me can get close. Yeah. When did you, when did you start to think about teaching? Oh. Because that I that I love the most. That that warms my heart because it's one thing to be a master photographer and you keep it yourself, but if you start teaching others, that's what I think we should do as photographers. I thought so. I saw changes in people. I saw how f thankful they were for having this and realizing that they were good at it. No one's ever going to tell them how good they are except their mother. And she's not even going to look at the picture. She's just going to tell them how wonderful. But I learned, we, Scott and I learned a lot, you know, about, hey, what the hell do we know? We're going to start a class, so let's be logical. We've got to study this. We've got to study this. What would the average class have, basically? And we'll just do that to get started, you know. Or nothing wrong with that. We all have to practice this, this, and this. You, you get them to do that, at the end of the class, they've made progress. Everybody's happy. You know, it's an easy formula. And then, of course, we learn after each class what is really, you know, they don't even know how to operate the camera. And then we get real crazies in there that we have to try to control. And it, it's, it's, why is it so hard for the average person to make a photograph? They're afraid they're doing something wrong. I'm playing the game as a photojournalist. I haven't. Okay, we're going to put it in a book. We're going to, I've got an intent, you know. That's the game I tried to follow. But most people, they, they haven't thought about that. And so, I don't know. Yeah. Their pictures suck. But you've taught thousands of students. You've enlightened them with photography, which is... I know. And me and Scott both. Right. Oh, it's, what a nice thing to do. Right. What a nice thing to do. And we had to study and learn, so it helped us. And we got to look at all their work, and we got to look at the common mistakes. So it was very good for us. Sure. And I, I, bet, I bet there were images that students made that you were shocked. You're like, I, I never thought of it that way. <laughs> That's what's always fun. I know. Especially when you get into a group setting and everybody gets to look at everybody's work. That's... So powerful. Yes. Because when they, everybody goes, oh, right. They know, oh my gosh, they reacted like that. An audible reaction. Of my photo? <gasps> my, yeah, that, that, can, that can literally change a life. Oh. 
especially if you're old or young. What would a dinner be like here with Cartier, Frank, and Eugene? What would that be like if you had those three masters hit her with you? Can I get you something? <laughs> I'd be the waiter under the table. Oh, stop. Stroking Cartier's leg. Does that tickle, sir? Now, you had the pleasure to meet and photograph Frank. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, Frank. You got a photo of him smiling, which is a rarity. Oh, fuck. Here he comes. I said, oh, what am I going to tell him? I said, Robert, I, I teach photography at UCLA, and you're in my pocket for every class. He comes over. Never said a word and walked away. Well, I don't know what I'll do the rest of the day, but uh, that was special. You know? <laughs> yeah. He gave you a hug. He gave me a big hug. Yeah. Well. You should have. I'm a fan. I'm, I'm teaching. I'm using him in my class. Come on. That's, that's the best kind of respect. Yeah. Yeah, I was lucky to meet Robert and Jonathan Winters and people like that. Just crazy. So I, I had mentioned the first thing, being a rifleman, was, I think, a pillar to your start. I think being a, someone who worked on cars with your hands, doing restoration, working was also something that made you a better photographer because the precision. Accuracy. The accuracy, making sure that fender fit. That's it didn't it. just go on. It looked like it was when it came off the you know, assembly line in 57. Yeah. And that's how I see your work as you've progressed in your career. It's gotten better and better and better mm, to the thanks. point I look at you when you go out, and I mean this in the dearest sense, is a hunter. You are hunting for images. Oh, of course. Yeah. No, no. It's like uh, if you were looking for a special kind of a wildflower. Well, you've been walking here for years, but now you're still walking here, but you're looking for this special kind of wildflower. Right. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. A special part of life, you know, whatever, a little mm -hmm. dance, whatever. Yeah, playing the game. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm copying everybody else. Well, trying to know the habits of the animal. And, you know, the squirrel's going to always race around to the other side of the tree <laughs> so, <laughs> so that you can't shoot him. Sure. Not stupid. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, you know, the way you were so precise with the gun and the way you're precise with a fender, the way you're with a boat and making its mass yeah, work. Yeah, isn't that something? And the way you bring your camera up. I mean, I've seen the videos of you. I've seen you work. You keep it tight to your neck. It doesn't hang low. Yeah. It's up high. So you're, you're taking away delay to pull it to your face. It's yes. there, right? You don't keep your right rifle slung over your shoulder and then bring it up. Like, you're always ready. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, the rifle's carried up like right. this. You know? you're, you're, you have spent years practicing and honing your craft. And it hasn't gotten lazy at all as you've gotten older. It's just gotten better. Oh, yeah, more and more. Well, my father's garage. I got at a young age. I got to see these very talented mechanics work. They're all spotless. What the fuck? They're all clean as a whistle. But they're doing all this work on these cars. Very impressive to me. And so I was a nut and bolt guy, kind of a thing, you know, with boats and cars and things. I'd even building a, a treehouse, you know. 
But I was just very impressed by workmanship. We had the best body man from around, and people would say, yeah, you got the, the best guy. Look at that, you know. And so craftsmanship. And then I hung around places that are world famous, Rybovich boats in Florida. They make the greatest sport fishermen that ever made, you know. Mm-hmm. And different places, Bill Cushenberry custom cars up in Bakersfield, and Junior Conway, the greatest painter. I made it up. Well, anyway, you know, that's you pick it up. You go and you find it. You know who's got the best. I got in to Junior Conway's and Cushenberry's because I was a photographer. And I gave them prints. And they said, John, you can come back anytime you want. Isn't it amazing the power of a print? A 4x6, a 4x5, a 8x10. You give someone a print. And I mean, that's that's a gift forever. Yeah, especially an 8x10. Yeah. Who gets an 8x10? <laughs> yeah. Really? It's so rare. <laughs> I know. And of a, a great craftsman. And he's, you know, doing this with his hands. He's... He's spotlessly clean. It's a nice photograph. He loved it. Christianberry, he's crazy anyway, but I mean, he, he really appreciated me taking his picture. He was an eccentric, mm-hmm. one of the great custom car, you know, craftsmen in the world, you know, right. this guy. But that's, uh, uh, why not go hang around him? I hang around the best boat builders in Connecticut. Hung around their shop. Hung around the most famous ocean racing sailboat. Watched the whole thing be built. From 1951 to 1954 in that shop. Why? I love the smell of the cedar. This was Finisterre, Carlton Mitchell's Finisterre, the greatest ocean racer ever made. Beat everything all over the world. And it was an ugly boat, but whoa, somebody designed it. Oh, it was a Sparkling Stevens, but it was wide. And so it had a lot of stability, I guess. It went like hell at 38 feet. But I watch this stuff. I watch, like I see, just all these great mechanics and and uh, home builders, carpenters. I'm a class A carpenter. It's unbelievable to sit around and watch that kind of perfection being made. Well, the, the whole thing is knowing that there's no perfection and never even thinking about it. You can't think. You can't ever say the word. You can't think about perfection. There's no such thing. We wouldn't know how to de- describe it or notice it. How do you notice perfection, even in a ballpoint pen? How, we're too stupid to notice wall thickness instantly and the durability of the plastic injection mold process. We're still farmers, you know, just, but you don't worry about that. You take it for granted. But Does but, your heart still skip a beat when you see a photo coming? Are you still oh God. giddy? Oh, terrible wow it's an exhilaration you've done something wonderful nobody has to pay for it cost nothing nobody gets hurt you saw it you were smart enough to see that and then to grab it at the same time i can't take credit for that where'd that come from that's ridiculous yeah it's the it's it's the passion his first breath yeah you know it's the passion in us when we see something like that happen. We, it lights us up. It warms us up. Well, yeah, but see, you're working with a camera. So you're looking for stuff like that that'll suit the camera. You're looking for it. You're not just walking along and all of a sudden you stumble over it. No, no, no. 
I don't think that's, well, sometimes I guess that's what happens. But when you have the camera, no, you've got a reason for looking around. <laughs> yeah. And trying to make something out of something that's constantly moving. People don't realize how hard that is. Oh, he posed it. No, that's the whole thing. You don't do that. And that's why the black lines around my images to show there was no cropping. You know? Right. Intentional framing. This is how I saw it. This is how it is. Yeah, and luck, and the black lines did it for me. Mm -hmm. As soon as I carved out and ruined my negative holder, <laughs> right? Whoa, I'm going to pay attention. Isn't that funny? Yeah. How do we do that in shooting? We did something in shooting where it made it very uncomfortable to pull the trigger. <laughs> the one thing I absolutely love about you, and I lecture, when I do lecture, I talk about practice, is you are adamant about practicing the craft of photography. And I kind of label you as the Kobe Bryant of photography. Oh. He was adamant about practice. Oh. That was his conflict with Shaquille O'Neal. I've shot a lot of sports and I know them. Shaq does not practice. Shaq would be at this table and have a great time and Kobe would be outside practicing. Oh. He practiced, he practiced, he practiced all the time. Nothing was ever good enough. He worked so hard. And I see that when you work, you, you talk about you need to practice. Do not take who you are today for granted. No. You must get better and practice. And this craft needs it. You're so clumsy. Yeah. You're so clumsy. What are you doing? You're so clumsy. You got to keep doing it, but you're still clumsy. You never get over being clumsy. No. I mean, you need to be with a F3, right? With a, with a lens on it, you should be able to know, put your hands under the table with the camera and know every button, every function, be able to rewind it, put in film, and never look at the camera. It needs to be intimate. Like the back of your hand, you should know that camera. And when I tell students that, they always go, that's so silly. No, because there will be a time you will need that to happen to make an adjustment. A bank robbery, and you get the pictures of the guy running out with the money. Yeah. You want to be at F8 when you need to be at 2-8? You got to be able to make the move, change things, change dials, and not look. Just know. Yes. And like I've that. always loved that about you, that you, you preach practice. Well, I, you know, maybe I got it from the M14 and, and the Marines. My God. They had us field stripping the rifle and putting it back together blindfolded. Mm -hmm. I know one's going to do that. What the hell are you talking about? But they did it. Right. They have to do it. What happened in Korea? They got to get overrun. You better get those rifles working. And so they, it was so cold, the men urinated on their rifles to get them working again when the Chinese overran them. So we learned a lot about, you know, disassembling the rifle and all the reason for all its parts and everything. Makes you a much better shot. Just to understand how the camera works. Why are you using a 50 millimeter lens? That's a wide angle lens. Do you want to use a wide angle lens and, and involve more stuff than you really want? Or, you know, you, it's, why aren't people thinking about it more? Because I think their mothers told them how good they were. But when you're a mechanic growing up as a kid, whatever your mother told you, there's nothing there. There's just these tools and that broken engine. What are you going to do now? Yeah. <laughs> That's a wonderful teacher. Because I could ask one of my father's mechanics if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. I could look it up in Hot Rod Magazine and that, you know, things like, and fix it myself. Well, that's wonderful. It's, you know, 
So that's good for your ego. It's good for your, you know, self-esteem. If you can take this apart, and I'd be taking carburetors apart, and you know. Were you a tinker always as a child? Were you always taking stuff I'm apart? Hyperactive. Yeah. So that was just a way to fill your energy yeah, in your hands. Set. Remember those? <laughs> yes. God. <laughs> I was making. They let me make a cannon in high school <laughs> shop class. Jesus. Cold rolled steel this long. No, you don't make them out of cold rolled steel unless you want to fire them. Hello. <laughs> They're made of brass, you know. Yeah. Then I had the pirate's carriage, you know, the wooden carriage. And I bored it all the way down, took shotgun shells apart, stuffed them in there. Oh, God, John. I fired it off in the back of the house. <laughs> the thing went flying across there. And, of course, my mother opens up the upstairs window and says, what the hell are you doing now? <laughs> they told me to clean up the brush. We had this huge place. It was a whole big pile of brush. They said, Jesus, better burn that, Johnny. Well, I didn't know that inside that uh, pile of brush was a sealed 55-gallon oil drum. Of what? A 55-gallon oil drum. Oil drum. Sealed. Well, like we heard this crinkling. Just before it went off. <laughs> it was pushing out the ends, you know. I didn't know. <laughs> the whole neighborhood the must have heard and, that thing. Yeah. Oh, all the embers and burning twigs went flying up in the air. They saw it from the high school a mile away. <laughs> Again, my mother opens the window. Is there no surprise there wasn't children after you? I mean, my God. <laughs> John. Oh, uh, now, there's a wild card in your life. The voices. I couldn't help that. Yeah. When Since did, I was five years old. When did you start, you know, thinking that you could do that professionally or, or throw Never. that into the mix of your life? Because you've done a lot of voices. I went to Disney and I said, hey, I do voices. You know, would you want a voice? Wait a minute. You don't just go to Disney, like knock on the door at Burbank. and no, like, I was I working for them in the body shop or, you know, making uh, the trams. Okay. You know? And so I, I heard about the guy that was the head of the department, Ken Lisi. Nice guy. I said, oh, I dropped off on the lunch hour. I said, hey, Ken, I work down here. I also do voices. What do you need? He says, that's amazing. He says, I need two voices right away. <laughs> He said, uh, you know the two Disney vultures mm -hmm. that sit up on the tree waiting for something to die? Well, I need voices for them. And uh, magic occurred. Instantaneous fucking magic. I couldn't believe it. I, I, the first voice was a very obscure character actor. He was from Kentucky. He had goggle eyes like that. He talked like this, see? And the other voice was Walter Brennan. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, look what he's looking at down here at me. And so I go in and Ken Lisi said, oh, those are great. And so I did the voices, went home, stopped off at Cliff's Books in Pasadena. Used books. I'm in there and there's a space in the books so you can see someone from the other aisle. And there's a guy looking at me like this, full beard. And it's the guy that did his hillbilly voice that day, Robert Eastland. What the fuck? What's he looking at me for? 
I didn't say anything, but there he is looking at me like, uh, why? How do you know I did his voice that day? How, how obscure is that? That's wild. I did his voice and then ran into him the same day? He's the most obscure character actor you've ever heard of, you know? But I did voices in the, you know, I, t I guess I told you in the yeah, Marines. Yeah, right. Where I screwed them all up, you know, in boot camp with this play. But why, but, I mean, so how much work did, more work did you keep doing with the voices? Oh, no, not much. Okay, just a couple of times? Yeah, I'm thinking, and I'm forgetting too, but no. And then a guest on the uh, Machine Gun Kelly radio show. <laughs> oh, I made it for this fucking guy. I did the Jonathan Winter. Mm -hmm. We've got a call coming in. There's a strange aircraft has crashed. <laughs> They loved it. I'd call in. I'd, get, I'd say, I'll call back in five minutes. I got this thing for you. Okay, call back in five minutes. And I'd call back and lay this thing out on you. Oh, and then I did the Jonathan Winters. It says, you know, there's a, we got a problem down here in Orange County. Uh, got an influx of domestic cats. And uh, we don't, we can't control them. And the last thing, you know, I built up the last thing I said, and they kept it on the radio. There seems to be an awful lot of pussy down here in Orange <laughs> County. And they left it in. Did they really? Yeah. <laughs> First, they never called me back. <laughs> I can't imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> what has been the best part of living for you? Living? Yeah. Best oh. time. Oh, being married to my wife. Best, best Yeah. Because we all have to find a partner that's willing to sacrifice us oh my to go gosh, do the photography. But then also the satisfaction of restoring an automobile and looking at it and realizing how much work you've done. And then does it measure up? Right. That's it. Does it measure up? Are you painting the inside of the fenders too? You know? Because you're up against the greatest in the world right here in Southern California. This is it. This is where the greatest restoration, car, you know, right. car painters, you know. This, this is, is the it. spot. And, but I came from that. See, I came from that. I was doing work like that. when I, I did body work on my father's car when I was two years old in the driveway. The wrong way. <laughs> it was a, uh, do you remember those Crosleys? Those little Crosleys? Yeah. My father would tow it behind a customer's car, deliver the customer's car, and then drive back in the Crosley. He was a Chevy dealer. Okay. And here I am, two years old with a body hammer. Boom. Boom. <laughs> they couldn't get mad at I me. Mean, he was trying to do something. Yeah. <laughs> God. <laughs> what drew you to the street photography and not? you know, oh. anything else. Because that's a huge commitment because you've got to go out, go get it, go find it, look for subjects. Was it for you just a getting out, the hunt? No, it's the fact that it's the most difficult form of photography. By you far. never know what's going to happen. Right, by You're far. Not anything. Everything else is easier. Horse racing? They're going to come by here in a couple of seconds. You better be ready. I mean, everything else is simple. Right. Because you, you never know what's going to happen. Right. You have to be uh, technically and physically proficient, which no photographers are all stumbling, it seems. No, but that's what it is. You've got to be a good mechanic and an and a, uh, athlete. 
constant check, constant, you know, be, because the more you do it, the more important it becomes, obviously. It's very important. If you can get better and better and better, look how you'll feel. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, you know, you're up there with the best, maybe? I don't know, but what's going on here? It is, you're doing something positive, and you're making a great product for others, not for you. You're making this product for others, just like a musician. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a lot of what your work is, is you are providing a window to these people that other people would not have seen. You're providing images. You're, you're letting people in on their life. Yeah, yeah. It's a moments. game. Yeah. It's, just a, it's a game. It's like a, the kids game, ring Olivia or kick the can. Right. Wow. He came right in there, kicked the can, took off again. Wonderful disciplines that we can learn. And, uh, but photography, my God, how important. What it's, advice would you have for someone who wants to go out and try it? Because it is, it is not easy. No, but your photographs are going to last millions of years for people to be seen on this planet and other planets by that time. What are you going to show them? Here's your chance to be a teacher of worlds and just put on a little dance for them and show how happy you are and show what humans can do with a camera and bless the universe with your photographs, knowing how powerful it is and what a wonderful gesture that you're releasing. A celebration of life. That's what it is. It is. And it people really will is. get that if it's in the work, you know? Yeah. Are you happy with your work? Yeah. Have you stopped photographing tomorrow? No, no. No, no. If you did, oh. would you say, I, I did what I accomplished? No. What have I accomplished? I mean, I never thought about accomplishing. Isn't that funny? What do you stack up? I need prints. This, uh, I got maybe 15,000 prints in that cabinet over there. Big stacks, big stacks of prints. No, I, you know, never thought of that. Like you're building engines. You don't think of the waste that you throw down or, you know, there's some things you'd get, you want to get out of your head so you don't have to carry that. Joe, take this waste over there and get rid of it. I want new stuff. You know, you don't think about it. You get rid of it. You know, the easy, uh, non, uh, very important stuff. You forget about that and work on other things, you know. It's because it's you go from a mechanic to a body man to a, a boat builder to a, a carpenter. And each one of those things is, is an influence. Carpenter, when you measure it here to here and then here to here, and it turns out right. Wow, what a great way to check you know, <laughs> and we do that photographically because we know that we did it carpentry-wise. So you better check. You got everything right in there before you push the button. Mm -hmm. Is there a photo you wish you could get back you missed and you, it, it burns your soul that you missed that moment? Uh, yeah. I could, see, I could see that in your face. When and you I don't know which one it was. But it happened. It was well, There oh, was one in 78 and 82 and 60. I mean, there are other. I think it happens more than I can. I think you try to forget about that stuff. Right. I don't think it's good for you to think about it unless you can repair your speed or your your style or your technique. You know, mm -hmm. if it adds to your technique, good. You have to use it, even if it beats you over the head. But no, you have to forgive yourself on a lot of the stuff. It's just too fast. And how fast am I supposed to think? And, and, and am I faking it? 
Jeez. Am I just going to go like that? Oh, is that faking it? Oh, is it following my intentions or am I sloppy and too slow? It's terrible. Yeah. But you know how important this is. This is a game. Cartier Brisson is the winner. We're all <laughs> chasing him. I think so. Well, no, that's the problem. That's the problem. Gene Smith is the champion. Yes, he is. But no one, no one, no one goes after him like they should. Like they should grab Brisson and no one studies them and says they're the best. They don't know and they don't care and they won't study. That's what gets me. That's he, foolish. Well, that's crazy. You don't build hot rods that way. And that's a simple-ass thing. You copy this guy, you think this guy, you look at this. But, like, I think it's because their mother told them how great they were and they're not going to listen to advice. And I don't know. Uh, Scott and I have been teaching so long, I can't figure it out. I don't want to teach anymore. What's the best photo you've taken? The one you want to be remembered for. Oh. Now, in the, you know, as, as an artist like you, what we've taken and what is dear to us are two different things. There might, might be a photo you took that meant so much, but it might not be your best photo. I'll be darn. Gosh. Well, the most memorable and gut-wrenching to me was his first breath of life, you know. But disgusting-looking photograph. <laughs> His head just being delivered, you know. Oh, my, my parents didn't know what I was doing, ever. Two years old, I'm miles away. They don't miss me. So I was playing tackle football in private school at eight years old. Tackle. And I ruined my left leg. I got osteochronditis which is a softening of the two bones where they meet, you know. But I was at my Aunt Potsy's house. She was a wonderful gal. Oh, party woman from New York, Tarrytown, where I was born. She was a wonderful woman. She was a real woman. My mother was an asshole. She said I'd go out to her house for a party or something in Killingworth, Connecticut. She said, Johnny, go across the street in that pond over there and see what's the biggest frog you can bring me. Oh. So it's a doctor. Back to the doctor. <laughs> oh. So we're at her house having a party, and there's this army doctor just came back from Korea. This is that's how old I was. Just came back from Korea. Dr. Pete Ciccarelli, handsomest movie star guy. He says, Johnny, come here. What the what are you what are you doing? What's what's wrong with your leg? <laughs> and uh told my parents, he says, you get that guy down to Grace New Haven Hospital tomorrow. The first thing in the morning, get him down there. <laughs> Almost lost my leg. My parents didn't even pay a fucking attention to me. Then they don't see me limping. My leg's ready to fall off. I'm limping around when I'm hyperactive. They don't even notice it. Got down there and Pete Ciccarelli took care of it. <laughs> put it in a cast from my hip to my ankle for six months. And they took the cast off. They found all these firecrackers down there that had started down there. <laughs> By the, I had my own boat. I couldn't use my own boat. All these kids swimming and diving for the summer, and I'm up on the beach with that cast. 
made my father cry. Has it, has it ever been a hindrance for you when you go somewhere and you can't just calmly have a conversation or, or go out to dinner and your eyes not wandering and wanting to make a picture or what that would look like or that subject? Have you no, ever... you can change. You can go at half speed. Yeah. <laughs> you have to. You I was at dinner cordial. last night with my wife and I'm looking around That's and I, I mean, it's just trying to stare at my beautiful wife and I'm like, there's a, there's a photo there. That woman's walking through the shaft of light. <laughs> It's always don't, hard to turn don't, off. Don't. Your wife will say, what was that all? Yeah, I know. She's got bigger tits. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. But it is. It's, 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 is it difficult for you to turn that off? Oh, of course. But I turn it, no, I, I have to turn it halfway down. Yeah. I have to be cordial. I have to be pleasant to be with, if that's mm -hmm. possible. But I'm, I'm still trying to look and be real casual about it. You know, yeah. I'm looking here, but I'm going to photograph here. I've got little tricks where I don't want to disturb anybody. But, yeah, how can you not? I mean, if you, if you realize this is a game and it goes off anywhere, some kid could be running down those stairs, bam. Why not take it? You're not bothering anybody. Well, you're bothering some people, I guess. But you learn that you don't know where you're going to get a good picture. You know, boom, you're ready for it. Why not be ready for it? You're going to kick yourself in the ass if you, if you miss a picture because you didn't have your camera. That's how I felt, you know. As photographer, as being a photographer, has that completed you? Do you feel you're a better person because you picked up that camera? Oh, fuck no, no, no. Oh, in some respects. But not in being a nice person or something. It's just widened my vision of what I may, might be doing in life that was important to me. How could, you do, how could you pick anything better than photography to get serious about it and to, you know, to copy the efforts of the greats? You know, what's wrong with that? Well, gee, you're competing against pretty high standards. Yeah, so? Better than basketball? Or any ball game? I mean, that, why not do it if you can create important works? <laughs> it's so simple. You it's still love it? Hmm? You still love it? Oh, yeah, I'm still with it. I'm in the darkroom more than I go out with the camera. Okay. But that's understandable because sure. of the sickness and the age and everything. But I'll get out there and, uh, oh, it's, it's wonderful. What are the three things, you know? Oh, move over there. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, but you see, the intention is so good for you. You're trying to create something that's great for other people to look at. Well, that's got to be good for you. You're bringing this antique car back to life and shining it up. That's got to be good for you. But the antique car is going to be forgotten about in a few years. And like I say, thousands of years, your photographs are going to be speaking. It's all these things I think that you should think about and roll around and, and it helps your responsibility and your dedication to purpose. But you have to convince yourself how important it really is. You can't take the importance away from what we're doing. It's been proven by Jane Smith, Brisson, all those guys. We're doing a great job. We're, have, we're trying to help photography, trying to help body work. So you write little notes all the time about body work and how you can fix hammers to work better, shorter handles, uh, you know, 
Any little detail that you contribute to, it's like a pit crew on a race car, constantly thinking of little sidesteps. You've got to do something, but you're creating your product, and what's the caliber of it, and what's the quality of your product? So that's what I'm doing, and I'm doing it here in my home. I can do it in my home. You know, yeah. I don't have to have a shop or things. You know? Right. And uh, so, and it's important work, of course. You have made important work. You have definitely documented people in a way that makes the images special. And you really, really have made a mark in photography. Oh, thank you. Uh, that was never my intention. I just wanted to do the, the best work I could do. Sure. And then compare that to others. Just like body work on cars, you mm -hmm. better start comparing it. Whoa, look at this guy. You know, you got that. That got that rolled fender edge just as straight as an arrow. How do you do that? You know, fire and clamps, mm -hmm. and not burn up the rest of the fender. You know, oh. I used to before I take a fender off a car, I'd make a holding fixture out of steel tubing, weld up the steel tubing. Every bolt hole in the fender is attached and screwed up, and. I worked at Hill and Vaughn, the most famous restoration shop in the world, Phil Hill, and over there in Santa Monica. I made that thing for these big fenders off of big rolls. You know, here it is sitting right there on four legs you, and with wheels. You can roll it into the body shop. You can roll it into the paint shop. You can reach all angles of it. No one's ever seen anything like that. That they usually have it up on a sawhorse. Right. Yeah, work. We're dealing with an aluminum handmade fender here. <laughs> Phil Hill came by and saw that. He almost shit. Wow, mm -hmm. who takes that? Phil Hill, the yeah, owner, famous guy. He came over and saw that fixture that I wrote. Of course he's going to jump. He's never seen anything like that either. But how much respect are you going to give an item? If you're going to restore uh, the house I lived in in Old Saybrook, 1737, how long is it going to take you to reframe that door there correctly? You know, I mean, you got to give everything respect, and that's what's wonderful. We're going to bow down to this car, and we're going to give it everything we possibly can in our mind and our skill set to bring it back. And what's wrong with showing off with these holding fixtures? Yeah. Now, you said a word there, respect, and I do see that in your images, that you respect your subject. Oh, yeah. oh, I respect the subject and I respect the process. Yeah. No touch, you know, held by standards. Not going to hurt. You don't photograph the fat lady. Yeah. Got no reason to photograph the fat lady. But, I mean, you are, you are very connected to your subjects. Very connected. I mean, when you and I sat down, we were looking at your book. I mean, it's not that you just have a story about every image. I mean, I could see it that you're personally connected to every image you've taken. Well, that's what's great about it. That's what's really wonderful about it. You put your heart into it and then you see that it's good. Years later, you see it's still good. That's good for you. John, this has been wonderful. This time that you gave me oh. has, has been a blessing. I, I, I Honestly, you are on the Mount Rushmore. Oh. You are <laughs> one of the greats. Which one, TR? <laughs> They're building a new one just off to the side by the gift shop. <laughs> bully, bully. 
Thank you, Thank sir, you. for oh. for making the images, being the person you are, giving back to photography. I, I think of anything, you giving your time back and teaching is is the greatest thing you could have ever done. I think so. I think so. Just to get other people a taste of it and get them started and get their blood going and get them feeling good about themselves. Oh, Oh, just it's yeah, it's a good feeling, you know. And it's so easy to give. It's a hobby. You're building model airplanes. Have a class. Share your techniques with. That's all it is. But it's a wonderful thing because when people find out they can do it and they look and they see that I took this, wow, it must mean a lot. Yeah, if they're doing it well. They're comparing it to other people. But it's a wonderful pastime because you know it's good because you're doing it for all the people in the world. You're trying to provide these stories about mankind that are good to look at and good to feel. And so that's, that's a job. It's an entertainer. You're an entertainer. Mm -hmm. But you have to think about it. And you have to be a pro. You know, my mother was a professional dancer. She was crazy. Bitch, but she, was, she could kick the top of that door jam in her 70s. Remember that? Or 80s. Wow. I can't, I can't thank you enough for oh, the time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You're helping photography. It's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, we do need to give back. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful craft. We're oh. blessed to know what we know. Craft, that's right. It's not an art, it's a craft. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And to get, if we can just give back and make one kid just a little bit better, then we've done our job. I know. That's it. Payback. That's all we want. Payback, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I just wanted to give that. I think it meant so much to me. It changed my whole life. If I could just talk to this kid for 30 seconds, it could maybe change his life. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. Thank you, sir. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. You're such a gentleman. This has been an absolute Thank honor. You. We have a little bonus episode for you. John Free's son, Scott, sat down with me afterwards and gave me a quick rundown of what they teach and learn in the workshop. So what we learned in the class is there's a great couple things, couple discipline things that can get people started that uh, is great for their beginning in photography, even if you've been shooting for a long time. The first one is what we call the headshot. Now, it's not candid, um, but what, we, what you do is you find somebody, it could be a stranger or a loved one, and you spend half an hour with them. And you, you get the first, you get the focus down on one of their eyes, probably the eye that's closest to the lens. You get that focused in with your hands, with your elbows pressed against your body, you get that focus done. And then, once that focus is on the eye, then you gently sway the body to keep it in focus. Then you start to engage the subject in conversation to the point where you notice that they finally let go of themselves and they reveal the relaxed state. And you're able to photograph them in a, in a way that makes them look like an effective person in this environment. You make some prints, you give it to them. The appreciation that that person lends to you gives you the body language that will make it easier to photograph strangers in the street because you can give something good to people. It's not taking. Mm -hmm. You're noticing something in somebody and revealing that to them with the headshot. That teaches you how to focus. It teaches you the meaning of photography, the value of it, but it also gives you that, um, that sense that you've done something good for somebody. Uh, the second one um, is called the isolation challenge. 
Now, you go out into the world and you find a place, an interesting spot. I can suggest a couple. But you find one place and you put yourself in one place and you stay there for one hour. You can pivot. You can, you can, you can go down. You can go up. But you have to stay in that one spot. Because photographers are often walking around too much. We're seeking too much. So find one spot and stay there for an hour. 50 minutes into the exercise, you're noticing that you can still make slight little changes and notice more about what's in front of you, like shadows. Um, you could start to look into the future with things that are about to come into your frame to include and realize that maybe there's a pattern to the way things are moving and you can get it again if you mm -hmm. didn't get it the first time. Right. But because you're staying in that place, you're making the most of this one perspective. Then... After an hour, then you walk around, and you're, then you can make the most of everything that's in front of you. So you've trained yourself to really notice everything from that one force perspective. Um, the other thing I want to mention is the discipline. We shoot full-frame, candid, available light in black and white, and we use an SLR camera. That means everything in our frame is intended. There's no delay, and there's no cro cropping. Uh, with, the f with, the, with the SLR, we're always full-frame. And we, we file out the negative holders to show the black line, to show that everything in, in the frame was intended. Right. And that, that is not only about bragging, but it's giving, us a, 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 um, it's giving us something to work within to push our own boundaries. Mm -hmm. And so we, you have to get close. The reason all my dad's pictures are in focus is because he was trained as a, as a shooter in the Marine Corps. You have to be right on the money with focus. Right. And so all of his pictures are in focus. That's very helpful to use an SLR camera to get everything in focus as well. You know, uh, Rassam was great at the rangefinder. You know, you do have that, that extra peripheral vision where you, that you can see things about to come into the frame, but you don't have 100%, and so it's always a little bit of a guess. Um, and so we, we, we like to give those slight rules of photography just to allow people to expand within the rules so they have a, a guide. Mm -hmm. And I think those two perspectives are helpful for the beginning photographer. And I think... Working with about a thousand photographers over the years, um, the first thing is get closer. Right. You There's know, a lot of people that it's a scary thing mm. to move within someone's personal space. Mm -hmm. It it's not natural, right? You you're close enough to friends, then you might be close enough to family, but now a stranger, you got to get into that space. Mm. That can make people very nervous. Mm -hmm. It's a craft. Yeah, well, uh, giving pictures to people will, will change your body language. So you're not taking, you're not collecting. You're there to notice something cool about people and remind them about it. You might come back a week later with, with a print. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things my dad has done. He, he gives prints, and things come back to him. You know? So it enables him to get closer because they know that, hey, this guy's cool. He, he's authentic. Thank you for listening to my conversation with John Free. Don't forget to check out his website, johnfreephotography.com. Take a look at his book, At the End of the Line. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the like button and become a subscriber to the podcast. And remember to follow the Just a Good Conversation podcast on Instagram. You can find all of our past shows on the website at justagoodconversation.com. Thank you for listening.